Hello everyone and welcome to the OMC Mindfulness in the Workplace podcast series. Each of these episodes explores a different aspect of mindfulness in various workplace contexts, as well as key themes that we believe will be relevant to support you. I'm Andrea Lowe, Project Manager at the OMC. And today in this episode, Sharon Hadley, our CEO, is going to be talking to Michael Chaskelson about mindfulness for senior executives. So good afternoon. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Michael. Um, today, uh, for reference, I think I might give the date um, because things develop and maybe we'll, we'll catch up with a later one. Uh, but today is the 12th of November. And you've kindly joined us to talk about mindfulness in the workplace as a short podcast to support our training program. And specifically to talk about um, mindfulness, um, senior executives, leaders, consultants, people that you are working with on a, on a regular basis. Rather than me trying to do an introduction and summarize your, your experience here, why don't you uh, maybe share some of, some of your mindfulness and teaching experience in this area? Yeah, I'd be very happy to do that. Thank Thanks, you. Sharon. Yeah, it's, thank it's very good to be here. Um, uh, so yes, how did this all begin? It began way back in the mid-1970s, before mindfulness was ever a thing. Uh, I was studying philosophy at uh, university, wasn't happy with what I was hearing. That didn't answer my questions. Kept on looking, came upon a Buddhist center where they seemed to be talking my language. I learned to meditate and it just went on from there. So I spent you know, pretty much the rest of my adult life committed to that particular approach, um, the, the approach of you know, turning your attention towards your own mind, investigating that to get a better understanding of how things work, how your experience is actually shaped and delivered. Uh, so I was fully engaged in, in, in doing that, doing lots of meditation practice, lots of retreats. I had a short foray into entrepreneurship. So uh, towards the end of the 70s, uh, a friend of mine who was working in India asked me if I'd set up a fair trade company to help to support the work they were doing in India. And I happily, naively agreed to do that. So I borrowed a, a bunch of money and set up a company. The, the stuff they were sending from India was unsellable in the end. So we had to do other deals in other countries in other ways, but ended up uh, somewhat sort of unconsciously building a very successful fair trade company. So it came to have sales of around 10 million sterling. It was giving away a million quid a year, employing a couple of hundred people. So I had this sort of foray into entrepreneurship. I got to understand what it's like to run a very demanding startup, especially one with cash flow problems and debts. But um, it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. It wasn't what I intense, you know, really set out to do. So I, I handed my shareholding to a trust, went off to do other things. And I went back to doing, you know, the mindfulness work, teaching Buddhism, writing about it, meditating, retreating, blah, blah, blah. Around about 2002, I wanted to make a change. I came upon the master's program at Bangor. It was just yeah. set up then, and I, I joined that. It was fantastic. You know, at last, you know, here was a way of using my expertise in the world. And I was the first graduate. Yay. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I started, I, I, I came to work soon afterwards at the center, teaching on the masters. And uh, we were, I guess, most of our 
the people we were working with in those days were NHS clinicians. That seemed to be the largest proportion of people we were working with, or people who wanted to be mindfulness teachers. Yeah. And uh, so the skills I developed working with those people, helping them to learn how to teach mindfulness, uh, got me to set up a mindfulness for coaches course. It was suggested by a friend of mine that that would be a useful thing to do. I set up a course for executive coaches that came to be quite popular. The executive coaches brought me into organizations uh, and it went from there. So I wrote The Mindful Workplace, which was you know, probably the first book on mm. you know, mindfulness at work and built up a reputation as um, you know, someone who could teach mindfulness in the workplace. And, and really that's what's just happened more and more since then. I've come to be a professor of practice at a business school. I work at various business schools these days at, at Ashridge Executive Education at the Muller Institute here at Churchill College in Cambridge, at um, London Business School from time to time, teaching there, but also directly in organizations, mainly at senior uh, executive, senior leadership, consultancy levels, mainly there. And that's the group that we're talking mainly about today, isn't it? That kind of leadership yeah. senior exec group. Yeah. Can you remember when that first book was, Michael? Because it feels like it's very quickly become an intervention or um, a practice that's, that's being accepted into workplaces. Yeah. Do you know, I really can't remember. I, I think it was probably published around about 2007, 2008, maybe. Yeah. I can't remember. I, I, I remember it, it feels like it wasn't that long ago. So uh, yeah. it feels like a lot has happened <laughs> oh, since then. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot what happened, does that tell us, Sharon? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it tells us we've known each other a while. And, um, <laughs> but it has developed quickly, hasn't it, Michael's in the world? It has. It, it really, it's, it's developed like wildfire. Yeah. And it was really the, the science that was driving it, the science that was mm. coming out of the clinical yeah. Uh, studies and research studies that made this thing so much so much more acceptable. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, when I, I first started doing it back in the seventies, it was impossible. In the eighties, you know, when I was really quite keen to bring it into the workplace. In fact, I wrote a book called Mindfulness and Money before the two thousands. Uh, it didn't really take off. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it just wasn't right. The time yes. wasn't right. Yes. But when we had the research evidence, everything changed. Yeah, yeah. So what is it do you think that um, that prompts kind of senior leaders or you know executives in a workplace to reach out to someone like you and and explore yeah. introducing mindfulness into the workplace? Yeah, yeah. well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm often brought in by learning and development departments, HR departments. Sometimes I'm approached directly to work one to one with someone. They might approach me directly, but mainly in terms of working in organizations that come through learning and development departments, HR mm -hmm. departments. And so why? Why might they do that? Yeah. Well, you know, we're talking about a, a, a cohort of people, middle or senior management, who have huge demands made of them. Uh, there's a really interesting thinker called Barry Oshry, who looks at the um, anthropology of organizations. He studies it from an ethnographic anthropological perspective. He studied organizations for years now, looking at how power plays out in organizations and what it does to people. And, and he th there's this absolutely standard model, he thinks, of how power works in organizations. 
uh, and Oshri's theory, you know, based on his years of research in that, is, is that senior leaders at the top, the top people, suck responsibility up towards them. They just do. They tend to want to do more and more and more. They feel more and more responsible. So they get very quickly overburdened. The middle level gets split. The middle level feels that they have to please the people above them and please the people below them. They have to meet the demands of the people above them and they have to meet the demands of the people below them. The bottom tier uh, feels completely dumped on. The, by and large, in, at that level in organizations, people feel done to and unhappy and grumpy. So you've got people who feel done to, uh, 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 people who feel split, and people who feel overburdened. The fourth uh, group are customers, and we're, we're all of us, by the way, at some point, at, at different points in our lives, in one of these places where a customer, we're bottoms, we're middles, we're tops. We're always in one of those places in relation to a power structure. And uh, customers always feel cheated. <laughs> <laughs> this is Oshri's theory, is that okay. customers feel disgruntled and cheated. They always feel as if someone's done them over. Bottoms feel dumped on, middles feel torn, and tops feel overburdened. So uh, take that as you will. I'm dealing with tops and middles by and large, the upper middles and the tops. Yes. And the upper middles feel torn and the tops feel overburdened. And people do in organizations. Most of the people I work with feel really, really, really pressed, really, really mm -hmm. pressed. Um, so here's a question I, I, I put to people in organizations when, I, when, when we meet very often before a presentation, you know, at the start of a presentation, I'll ask everyone to stand up in the days when we could. Yes. These days we have to work out other, other ways of doing mm -hmm. the same thing. You know, you can. Well, you still people. can stand up. Well, you could, yeah, but or you could raise your hand in a poll, depending on the platform we use. Yeah, yeah. But let's imagine it's live. I go stand up now. Uh, if you can, uh, if you answer yes to any of these questions, sit down. And the questions go. You know, you wait at least five minutes. If you don't answer yes to any of these questions, you you wait at least five minutes after you wake up before you check your email. Usually, the whole room's down by then. You rarely or never check messages on your phone during family dinner. That will get the rest of them. Uh, when on calls, you rarely do other work at the same time. By now, everyone's definitely sitting. You've had the amount of sleep you need for at least 10 of the last 14 days. Nobody goes They're sitting because the, the question is whether they disagree, right? So whether they... Yeah, they, they haven't yeah, had the amount of I sleep they need yes. for 10 yes. of the last 14 yes. days. One of the questions is, you work fewer than 50 hours a week. Everyone works more than 50 hours a week in those positions. Um, you receive fewer than 120 emails a day. They all receive more than 120 emails a day. Uh, and you think you've paid attention while I've been speaking more than 50% of the time. <laughs> and of course, they haven't. You know, the science tells us that they haven't. So, you know, people in those positions are called on to um, make smart decisions, to be emotionally engaged, to be able to collaborate effectively with others, to be resilient, um, you know, to regulate their emotions, to they can't do it. The task is really fracturing everyone's attention, leaving people tired, overburdened, somewhat exhausted, 
And under those conditions, they have to deliver often at very elite levels. So it's tough, it's tough, tough, tough. And it's just the nature of work today. Yeah. So organizations really are relying on somebody within the organization to have somehow gained the knowledge or understanding that there's an evidence base that mindfulness can support with those things that you've identified, the, the resilience, the, the, you know, the stressful. So the organizations are still reliant on somebody knowing that. Yes. That's, that's a, you know, organizations, mindfulness organizations have a, have a role to play in communicating and disseminating information around how mindfulness can help in different populations. Yes, and, and, and it, it, it is very tricky, um, yeah. you know, because uh, I'm in the fortunate position that I don't have to do any marketing. So people come to me, I don't, I don't go out very much. I've, I've written a few books and so yes. people come to me. Yeah. But I, I imagine that if you're in an organization, if you're in an HR and L&D department, you're bombarded with offers. Yes by people who think that they've really got the answer, who've mm. really got something to, you know, that's going to fix everything. Yeah. And, and, and so this is tricky. I mean, we're in a fortunate position where I think the culture as a whole is beginning to understand. Yes, I think there's much more information out there, isn't there, for yeah. people to... So what, what would, if you, if, if we are, a, if somebody's in a senior position and able to make these decisions and they have been approached or they've been they've been given information that could um it could encourage them to contact someone like yourself and introduce mindfulness what might prevent them from doing that well i mean <laughs> in, in, in my experience people in hr departments are understandably risk averse it's 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 um some of the studies tell us it's the most stressful part of the organization to work in, in most organizations. HR. HR, you've got yeah. huge responsibilities for people's lives. Yes. And you have to make very harsh and hard decisions some of the time. Uh, and at the same time, you want to, you're torn because you often joined HR because you want to help. And you're finding yourself very often needing to let go of people. Uh, it's a stressful and difficult position. Mm -hmm. And, you know, HR wants a word with you is not a is not something that people in organizations want to hear. No. Um, so it's it's a tough place to be. Mm. So for that reason and for the reasons of the various insecurities that come along often with that position, people are somewhat risk averse, I'd say. Don't want to blot their copybook or appear to be flaky. So you don't want to be doing something that seems too vegan. Yes. Because um, you know, it's not going to look good. On the other hand, the mindfulness, the reputation is changing massively, has changed massively, and it, mm -hmm. it's feeling much more normal to, to offer that in organizations. Yeah. How do you see that in your day-to-day -day work from, say, 10 years ago? Just oh, more totally contact different. or a different different language? How's, how's that totally that? different. I, I rarely have to explain what I'm, you know, what I'm on about these days, you mm -hmm. know, 10 years ago, mindfulness was unknown pretty much in, in the spheres I teach in, yes. or very, very little known. Now it's it's common currency. It's misunderstood. Yeah. People think about it as a way of chilling, relaxing, emptying your mind, getting rid of your thoughts. And it's none of that. And you have to explain all of that very carefully because uh, it's massively misunderstood. But um, 
and, and, and you know, if you're brought in for that purpose to help people to chill out and relax, it's important to explain that actually you're not going to do that. You're really going to help people to look at their minds at work and to make more resourceful choices. That's what yeah. we're on about. Yeah. But um, yeah, so it's different. And what, so for a mindfulness teacher that's maybe doing, for example, our, our workplace programme in the OMC, they've trained, they've typically maybe been working with the general population, some maybe in a clinical context. And, and I'm sure this could be a very lengthy discussion. So, uh, you know, uh, maybe we won't dig into too much detail, but if you could maybe pick, you know, two, three things, key things that you think would need to be done differently for a workplace context, for someone who's trained in, say, an MBSR or an MBCT program, what are the what are the key what, what would the key nuggets of information be that you might give groups? This is a really today? tricky question, Sorry, Michael. Because, yeah, I didn't no, know. that's fine. <laughs> I'll tell you why it's tricky is because it's so long ago that I worked in other contexts. Yeah. This is also and the, the the workplace context is now is now just the water I move in. So I'm trying to remember back, but. Um, well, firstly, I don't. I think you have to be very sensitive around inquiry. Mm. Um, you have to recognise that you know things that people say in groups in organisations uh, can have career limiting consequences and can have political consequences. So people necessarily come to work a little um, usefully, you know, from that point of view, meaningfully defended. And you don't want to charge in there and expect people to, to bear their souls. Uh, people often come to work with a game face. You know, they, they, they put their game face on and they come to work. And that's completely understandable. And that's not something that I'd want to interfere with. It's, it's there for a purpose. Yeah. So, you know, occasionally you may have occasions where, where you can go behind that and get a more authentic conversation going. But sometimes you just have to accept that that's the way it's going to be. So that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is I think you need to understand the language that people are talking in the room and what their desires are. Um, people's desires in an organizational context from training are different to people who have recurrent depression or people who have chronic pain or people who experience stress and anxiety or are conscious that they experience stress and anxiety. Um, in some organizations, stress is a badge of honor. It's not a, not a bad thing. So, um, you know, you, you need to understand what it is that you're offering, what people are looking for. Mm, yeah. And really, I think what, what we best can offer is an understanding of the way in which our mind delivers our experience. That's the simplest way, I think, of putting it. Understanding the way your mind delivers your experience, coming to see that at first hand and getting some choice around it. Then you can apply that in, in any way you like. In any, you know, you can apply that uh, to you know, the, the, the circumstances you're in. Yeah. Another thing that is, is Sharon, you know, uh, I work with people who are very driven and who are, the reason that I'm working with them 
the reason they get to be in the room at all at senior levels is because they're very, very good at doing stuff. They've, they've always been very good at doing stuff. You know, ever since they were at school, they were great at doing stuff. Yeah. You know, you give them a task, they master it, they move on. Give them another task, they master it, move on. They're hungry to get on top of stuff. They want to get really, really good at doing things. So people will often ask, you know, how do I know that I'm improving this mindfulness stuff? How do I know I'm doing it better? What should I be aiming yes. for? Or doing yeah. it right. Am I doing it right? Yes. And, and the thing that I, I, I suggest these days is look for kindness. If you're being kinder to yourself, kinder to other people, you're on the right track. How does That's that land with senior execs that are much more used to the, the, the profit margins? And it's, it's, I, I think it's a lovely challenge. Yeah. You know, it's a lovely challenge. Uh, you know, I've not, I've not yet encountered an outright psychopath who says, I don't care about kindness. No, good. I'm not interested in being kind. No, no one's yet said that. They might think that. I mean, I'm sure there are people there who would say, oh, that's, that's tosh. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Why would I want that? But I think it's, it's something that I think, I hope, resonates. Yeah. You know, be kinder to yourself, be kinder to others. Yeah. One of the things we've spoken about over the years, you and I in our various discussions, that I didn't I didn't kind of give you a heads up I might mention today, and it's just kind of kind of cropped back into my mind is how do we deal with the hierarchical structures within an organization, particularly mm -hmm. when they mix groups? I know that you you yeah. you work mostly in the in the higher yeah. level of yeah, the organization yeah, yeah, in yeah. terms of hierarchical structure, but yeah. there are organizations out there that mix groups. They how, do. Does, how does that, yeah, I know yeah. that's not your, I know we've spoken about this before. No, I've, I've, I've experienced it quite a lot. How does that play um, out? Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's inhibiting, I find, mm. at first. Okay. And sometimes, and I've certainly worked, <laughs> I've worked in organizations where uh, the senior person in the room feels obliged to be right and to be the voice of wisdom. So they will... Yeah often you know offer their wisdom into the room and you get the whole room pivoting towards them and giving them their attention and um you it's sad when that happens because you know very often that person isn't you know the the, the person who knows anything about what we're talking about you know when it comes to mindfulness but they feel obliged to to occupy that position and people also feel obliged to give them their attention or want to give them their attention uh yeah, it's probably an, a, an evolutionary drive at work there. So you have to watch that. Yeah. Um, and it can be inhibiting as well. It can stifle conversations. Oh, I, some of the feedback I've had from some of the teachers that have been teaching in the workers have found that maybe if they're doing, and I, I know this is another discussion, but if they were doing the kind of an eight-week program, which is also very difficult and complex to do in a workplace, but it is happening in some areas, that the feedback I've had is that in the earlier weeks, it has um prevented people from speaking freely but by week five or six the 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 difficulty comes in and then like you say around the inquiry and and people feeling more comfortable and free to speak about things they maybe wouldn't otherwise to mm. their line manager and like you say that's a skill that the the trainer needs to develop to be able to pick that up and read the room yeah. uh, you need correctly. to read the room you've got yeah. to read the room and be very delicate be yeah. very very delicate yeah be very careful so I, I mean, the last question I think that I had, I mean, we've covered it 
uh, in some of the things, and it maybe that there's, there's a little bit more to say is, you know, what skills are vital for teachers to move into the workplace? Is can can anybody do that, or do you think there is? No. What are the key things that really we should be looking for if we were interviewing some mindfulness trainers to to go yeah. into workplaces? Yeah, I think you know someone can be a really great mindfulness trainer, and just not be able to get any traction in the world of work. That you know that. They might be great in you know working with people with chronic depression and yet just find that they don't quite carry credibility in the yeah. workplace so i think understanding the culture that you're working in is vital yeah yeah understanding the co and, and feeling that you know the language the local language you know yeah. what do people mean when they say the way they speak in acronyms and what the way they speak about the organization and about its structures, the way they speak about power flows, um, the way they talk about customers and their needs or teams and their needs, etc, etc, etc. It's really important to have some understanding of, of this. And it's also really important to understand the culture that you're working in, because all organizations are different and sometimes subtly different and sometimes much less subtly different. Mm -hmm. So understanding the culture that you're going to be working in is really important. It's crucial. How do you get that, Michael? So you, you get a phone call tomorrow morning from a company that you don't know, big company, and says, hey, Michael, can you come and introduce mindfulness? We've read your stuff. We think you're the right guy yeah. for us. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what would be your kind of process? Before well, first of all, I pay really close attention to all the signals in that call. Yeah, such as? You know, what, 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 uh, things like tone of voice. Yeah. Things like, how am I engaging with this person? Like, how open are they being about what's happening in the organization? Is this, does this feel like a template sort of call? Okay. Or, or does it feel like an authentic sort of call? Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, are they connecting with me? So that tells me something about them. You know, am, am, am I talking to a person or is this a functionary? That would be crude. And there are degrees of all of this. Yeah. And are, are they engaging with me as a human being or are they engaging with me as just an external provider who'll be sending in an invoice so there's there's all of that sort of stuff so we, once we're past that i'll start googling and yeah. especially i'll be looking for news about the organization what's it going through what's been yeah. happening there recently yeah all of that i need to do my homework and come to understand what, what's going on in that organization then when I turn up, if I'm ever face to face, read the signs. What's it like at reception? You know, what's it like in the place where you're waiting? How, how, how are people relating to you all the time at every, at every sort of level that you engage with people? What's it like in the room? Just read, 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 read. Everything is a sign. And you're the decor looking... is a sign. The paintwork's a sign. And you're looking for matches for for you personally and what you can deliver and how you can help support because i guess the signs and the feeling will be different for everybody that goes in so you're looking for your personal match if you like of how you well, what, what am i feeling because that what does this tell me about what's happening here yeah what's it tell me about the life of the people in this organization yeah what's it like to work here what's it like to be them and that's that's my continuous interest there what's, what's it like for them here yeah. How, do they, how might they be finding it? And then check, 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 because don't think you you can you you can be right from your intuitions. There are mm. any intuitions. Yeah. Check, check, check. But you know we're looking for an understanding of the organisational culture so that we can come in in a way that either 
challenges or matches appropriately depending on what it is you want to be bringing about yeah so something about holding your own moral compass and working yeah. working in places where you know you can you can bring value because yeah. you understand their intentions and their culture and their needs yeah. in, in a way that matches that's really important and and you know just to kind of bring it to a close that holding that sense isn't it about you know I'm, I'm guessing you know it'd be interesting to hear whether you also walk away from from places that don't feel right too i've rarely ever done that but i have once or twice just said no i don't think this is right yeah yeah i'll, I'll just show you <laughs> i don't know if you've seen this no oh this move it slightly there yeah there you go no i haven't yeah. This is important. The Mindful Elite. Is that what it says? Mindful Elite. Yeah, by sunshine. Jamie Kuchinkas. And, and really, it's about mindfulness training in organizations. The Mindful Elite. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, what she says is that, you know, the promise of bringing mindfulness training into organizations was always going to be that there would be some sort of trickle down effect. We would begin to impact organizational culture. We'd begin to make changes. Uh, and, and now she's saying, Actually, my studies, my investigation in this topic tells me that doesn't happen. That what we're doing is we're just teaching an elite group of people to, to work better with, to regulate their emotions better, more or less. Uh, and it's staying there. I see. So that the trickle down is not happening. The trickle down's not happening. The organizational change is not happening. Culture change is not happening. Just you've got an elite cadre of people who are better able to regulate their own emotions. And is there any, I mean, we need to wrap up, but is, is if we buy the book, are there any, are there any suggestions of how to do that? Because- No, there are no suggestions, I don't think, not that I can remember, but um, which is one of the reasons why we're starting to get interested in team mindfulness, because yes. I think you can build out from that. And, you know, if you search on hbr.org, you'll see the um, article that Megan Rates and I wrote about that recently. It, I think that, that builds on a, on, a, on a piece of work we did with Weber Kohler, Chris Tamdiji, mm. Michael West, and uh, Silke. Yes. About, yeah, blah, blah. But. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's well, a topic we're going to need to cover, but we, we can't do that now. But it's an important note to end on, I suppose, is that if you're working with one particular group in an organization, don't assume that it's then going to be dispersed. Um, no, don't. Absolutely. Yes. So we need to think differently about what it is that we're up to. We need to understand what it is we're up to when we're working, for example, at elite levels in organizations. What are we actually changing? Yeah. What do we expect to be changing and what are we changing? And then if you're interested in, 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 in deeper systemic change, you need to think differently yes. about what it is you're going to be doing. That's a whole nother conversation, Sharon. Well, um, Michael, as always, I could talk to you for hours. Um, we do occasionally, um, but but I'm going to wrap it up. Um, and thank you very much for your time today and really appreciate your contribution to the programme and to the field and everything that you're doing. Well, thank pleasure. you very much. Yeah. The same to you. As always to talk to you. Thank you, Michael. Thank <laughs> Lovely you. to see you, Sharon. Yeah, you too. You too. Take thank good you. care. Take good care.